You know, one of the things that, that we did when our kids were little growing up is that we wanted them to understand the importance of permission-giving relationships. In fact, a healthy home is a home of permission. It, it's a home where children are raised to learn that you need to seek permission from the right people in the right circumstances and the right times. Now, one of the reasons we do that for little kids is for their safety, right? It's for healthy boundary because they don't have the judgment that they need. But another reason is because we want our children to understand that even when they're old and gray like me, you still need permission-giving relationships in your life. I have men in my life. I'm in a permission-giving relationship with them. Their no gives me pause. We lead this church as a team of elders that are in a permission-giving relationship with one another. Even as the lead pastors, we don't come in and say, this is what we're going to do. We, we, we find God's will together as a team. But can I just tell you, there's something else about permission-giving relationships that are important. Sometimes permission-giving relationships are about someone in a place of authority over us, releasing us to do something in our heart that we already know we need to do. And I feel like we're in a moment like that right now. So the band's gonna keep playing, and, and, and if you're here tonight, and, and you're in a difficult circumstance or a difficult situation, I, I just feel like God wants to hear Him say to you, I give you permission to come stand at this altar for a moment of prayer. I give you permission to be conspicuous. I give you permission to let your guard down. I give you permission to shed a tear. Even if you're six foot four and 220 pounds, it's okay to cry. I give you permission to receive from me, God, right? Receive from me what you're desperate for. So I'm just, just you come right now. If you're in this place where you, you know there's something in your heart, there's something, you're in, a, you're in a difficult place. That might mean different things for different people. I'm gonna invite you to come. Invite you to come. If you're here and you wanna stand for someone who's in a tough spot, then I'm gonna invite you to come. So some of you come for yourself, but sometimes you gotta take a stand for other people. I was in a meeting just this week with some people that I love deeply that they're in a tough spot and I'm standing with them right now with you. Jesus. Father, whether it's our heart that's breaking because of our own circumstance or whether our heart is breaking for the circumstance of another, we declare that song that we've been singing over our lives or over their life. That you are the God who's never lost a battle. That the only thing that you know is victory and breakthrough. So we stand in this moment, surrendering our life. We abandon ourselves to you. That even if this situation ends up being our undoing. Even if this circumstance leaves me undone, even if the outcome is something that I'm never gonna understand until I get to heaven, we say, we trust in you. We trust in you. 
But for people here who a breakthrough is coming for them, for people here who, who are waiting on a healing that you promised, for people here that are waiting for an outcome that you've already spoken to them, it's on the way. My prayer for them is that you would sustain them in their waiting, that they would not give up, that they would put their hope in your promise and not their situation. They would put their trust in the word that you've spoken to them and not their circumstance. And if we're standing here for someone else, if we're standing in the gap for another, we pray in Jesus' name by the power of the blood of Christ that was shed on that cross for the remission of sin. We pray, oh God, that every one of those people are gonna find a permission-giving moment just like we're in right now, where they find themselves on their knees, devoting themselves to you, declaring their trust in you, and that they would find that faith would be on the rise, that it would begin to stir, that that little bit of a flame that's about ready to go out, oh, that you would fan it ablaze and their life would be on fire with hope. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together. Amen. Come on, it's good. Say thank you to the worship team. Come on, it's good. We do just want to say thank you again for loving on us. What a journey it's been since 1927 to 29, 12 years, 12 years for us on this journey. And, and, uh, and I think I know I can speak for Vanessa and myself. I, I think we're just getting warmed up. Come on. We're just getting warmed up. So good. Hey, I got something else I want to share. We, we'll get into some of this message at some point, I think. When we were worshiping, too, I just, I, I just had such a picture. I remember when uh, Vanessa and I were much younger and, and, and looked a lot different. And our, our kids were little and they looked a lot different. And uh, that sometimes I would come home from work and uh, she was working in the home. Uh, I would come home from the office and, and, uh, and she would be waiting for me at the door with our three kids. And the door wouldn't even close as I was coming in that she was on the way out. And she was like, I just need a minute. I, I just need a minute. Just need a minute. You know. How many of you ever, right, been home? Tag you're it, right? It's not because you don't love your kids. You're leaving because you love them. Yeah. You just you just need a minute. For for some of you, it's be, not because of what happened at home, it's because of what happened at work. Right? You pull up to the house and you're just sitting in your car, and whoever the stay-at-home parent is, the mom or the dad sees you out in the car and texts you. You okay? Yeah, just need a minute. Just need a minute. You don't go inside because you love your family. You just, you need a minute. 
And I had such a sense as we were worshiping that, that God wanted to say to some of you here, he never needs a minute away from you. Not ever. That's a human condition. But it, it's no part of God's heart. Even though our behavior might be reprehensible, even though we're irritated with ourself, even though that we are frustrated to no end because we keep walking in the same broken patterns over and over again, even though sometimes the ugliness of our heart, we're so blind to it, we don't even see it. You know what God never needs is a minute. He is forever present in your life and in your situation and in your circumstance. I believe that's one of the reasons why in Matthew 28, one of the, is the, Jesus is right, right he's, he's at the end of his earthly ministry. Everything that he says in those last weeks and months of his life, right? It's, I'm, he's getting it all in before he goes. And right there at the end of the Great Commission, he says, and I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Now that means a lot of things. We could do a whole sermon series on that alone, but you know one of the things it means? It means that he never needs a minute. He never needs a minute away from you. You never exasperate him to the point where he needs to step away because he loves you. He's only ever stepping towards you because he loves you. So Father, I pray for that person that's here tonight that deals with rejection. I pray for that person that's here tonight that's struggling with shame. I pray for that person that's, that's, that's here tonight. Maybe, maybe on the way here tonight, they were at, maybe they spoke it out loud. God, you must be so frustrated with me right now. And they begin to wonder if you are stepping back from them. I pray that you would give them such a vision right now that's so real that it would feel as though it's happening because it is. That you're taking steps towards them. That you're closing the gap. And I pray right now, Father, that they would be overwhelmed and overcome by your presence. In Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series that we launched over Legacy Weekend called Why Do Be. It's entitled this way because it speaks to three significant conversations that Jesus had with his disciples that we believe he also intends to have with us. Why speaks to why he came. And these three statements have given us a new mission statement as a church, to build the church that Jesus envisioned to love the world he died to save. That we didn't come up with that phrase because it seemed fancy. We didn't come up with that phrase because it seemed trendy. We didn't come up with that phrase because we liked the way that it sounded. We came up with that phrase because it was birthed out of a study of these three questions. Why did Jesus come? What are we supposed to do? And who are we supposed to be? And as we looked at it through Legacy Weekend, we introduced you to this picture. We're not going to reteach it tonight, but I just want to show it to you that gives us these three boxes that are going to appear on the screen at any moment. There it is. Right? 
This is why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. We find that in Luke chapter 19. And then when we say, well, God, how am I supposed to do that? He says, build my church. And we find that in Matthew 16. And then when we say, well, how am I supposed to do that? He says, have love for one another. And we find that in John 13. And if you want to hear the teaching about how all that connects and works together, then you need to go back and listen to the podcast from Legacy Weekend. And these series of verses and acts speaks to why we're saying each successive box is the answer to the other. And then finally we get to the end and we say, well, how is having love for one another going to result in the lost being sought and saved? And that's where Jesus says, well, remember what I said in John 12, 32, if I be high and lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So we believe that when Jesus calls us to give our lives to the character of Christ being formed in us. It's not just to make us better people, but it's because as the character of Christ is formed in us, he's revealed to the world, and it creates a desire in other people to follow him. That last box, have love for one another, is if we were to restate it in in city life vernacular, we would say become people of virtue. As we become people of virtue, as we become virtuous people, Christ is revealed to the world. It's our greatest evangelistic tool. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So tonight's message is on that last box. Tonight's message is on this idea of what does it look like to love have love for one another. What does it look like to become a people of virtue? So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I want to begin reading in verse 46. It says, If you love only those who love you. right? If you're a Dodgers fan and you can't love a Nationals fan because they beat you, praise the Lord, What reward is there for you in that? Yeah. What does it say? It says, if you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? This is Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. It says, even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even godless people do that. Let me share this thought with you. Jesus isn't saying bring something, to world, bring something to the world that is missing. He's saying bring it in a way that's surprising. He's not saying bring something to the world that is missing. He's saying bring it in a way that is surprising. Why do I say that? Because virtue is present in the world. right? That's what he's saying. If you love people that love you then there's no reward for that. What is, it means that you're not being any different from someone who's not my follower. They have the capacity to love. They have the capacity to be kind and patient. We're not saying as a church that the virtues that we're going to talk about tonight, we've got to bring them because they're missing in the world. They are not missing in the world. They are present in the world. They are present in the world. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to bring it in a way that shocks and surprises people. To be a disciple of Christ doesn't mean to just be a virtuous person because anybody in the world can be a virtuous person. Jesus is saying be surprisingly virtuous. Do it when it seems like no one else would. 
How many of you are, live in a home where there's a constant challenge to scare the other people in the house? Hiding around corners, jumping out, yeah? We don't do it as much anymore, right? Because, you know, our kids are bigger, so they could get us as good as we could get them. You only do that as a parent if you're wise when your children are smaller, when you can always win. Right? You're, you're, you're coming down the hallway, and you're focused on something, and all of a sudden somebody jumps out and you scream, right? Or maybe it's not you're startled because you're scared, it's because you're, you're surprised because somebody loves on you. Like tonight, we didn't know that you were going to do that for us, right? So it surprised us. Maybe you've had a significant birthday and somebody threw a surprise party for you. You were, you were startled not because you were scared, but because you were pleasantly surprised. Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5, startle the world with your virtue. Surprise the world with the way you act and respond in situations and circumstances in such a way that causes them to go, ha, ha. Who's forgiving to someone like that? Who's patient in a situation like that? Who's kind to someone like that? Are we living our lives in such a way that the characters of Christ becoming a virtuous person is a surprise to those around us? Now, I'm not saying it's a surprise because people never thought you could do it. You with me? It might start out, you start surprising people because you have a reputation, right? That's a, that's a good way to get started. Some of you, that might happen to you on Monday at work. For some of you, that might happen later tonight when you get in a conversation with your spouse. For some of you, that might happen later on when you're in a situation with your children and instead of going off the deep end, you bring grace, Maybe being a surprisingly virtuous person is going to be shocking to others because it's new for you, but at some point, you've got to find your pace and your stride to consistently being a surprisingly virtuous person so people come to expect it from you, but still every time you do it because the situation seems so warranting a different kind of response, it still shocks them because the way you respond is different than the world tells you you should act. Oh, I love these verses. Mark chapter 11. This is such a great story. Mark chapter 11, 12 through 14. Again, these are in the final weeks of Jesus' life. It says the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, this is Jesus and his disciples, his entourage now. They're making their way to Jerusalem. It says he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves. Listen to what it says. Because it was too early in the season for fruit. So he comes to the tree. He sees leaves. He's looking for fruit. And there's none there. Not because there's something wrong with the tree. But because the tree is doing exactly what it's supposed to do in the natural. It's not yet ready for figs. Now this is an angry Jesus. This is prophetic Jesus. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. 
And it says the disciples heard him say it. I think I'm like, Jesus woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Now let me jump down to verse 19. It says, that evening Jesus and the disciples left the city, right? So they were in, Jer- they were in Bethany, walking down the road to Jerusalem, past the fig tree. Jesus curses the fig tree. They spend the entire day in Jerusalem. They're on their way back to Bethany, and they spend the night. They get up again the next morning, verse 20, and they're making their way back to Jerusalem. The next morning as they pass by the fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed that it was withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Have you ever stopped to realize that when Jesus, during his three years of ministry, as he taught and spoke and lived his life, he knew that he was writing the Bible? Because he's divine. I think a lot of times where he went away for the entire night to pray, part of that plan was he and the Holy Spirit working on what the text was eventually supposed to be. And he's living it out so it would be here for us. You think Jesus has an attitude problem? He's, he's, he's got a, a, a hungry persona? He's a little bit hungry, he's hangry? Anybody here like that? I know. I feel you. Jesus is creating a prophetic picture for the church because fruit all throughout Scripture is always paralleled with virtue. That's why in Galatians 5, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is saying to the church, because he wants us to understand, we are not called to be trees that only bear fruit when it is convenient. We are not called to be the kind of tree that only bears fruit when it's consistent with our biological, natural makeup. We're not called to be the kind of tree that only produces fruit when it's in season, when the world says that we should, when it's politically correct. Jesus is saying you got to bear fruit all the time. There is never a time where we as devoted followers of Christ have a sense of permission to say, I'm not going to be virtuous in this moment. He gives us this text, he gives us this story because he wants us to understand that the world is supposed to be able to come to us in every situation and every circumstance and there to be figs on our tree when it's not anywhere else. When they can't find grace anywhere else, they find it on us. When they can't find hope anywhere else, they find it on us. This is Jesus' list, I believe, of what virtue is. Megan, if you can throw that. I'm bouncing around on Megan tonight. She's doing a good job. This is what we believe is the portrait of the character of Christ. I'm going to read that list to you in just a minute, but this list comes from what we refer to as the five great growth lists. The five great growth lists. Don't put this slide up yet. I'm bouncing around on Megan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll tell you, I'll call for the slides. It's Matthew 5, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, and 2 Peter 1. 
Now, Dr. George Wood, who's a favorite theologian of mine, out of the Assemblies of God, he coined this phrase of these five texts being the five great growth lists. He calls them the five great growth lists because they are the five great lists of virtues. And as we've studied them and looked at them, we've taken out all the overlap and we've pulled out 24 from that, that list. And that 24, we say, is this is the character of Christ. It's the portrait of Christ painted in words. And this is the fruit that's supposed to be found on the limbs of our lives. The moment we make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and begins the work of producing this fruit in us. Listen to this fruit. Authentic, content, hospitable, truthful, persevering, wise, hopeful, loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, humble, grateful, merciful, honorable, principled, selfless, fervent, forgiving, believing, and self-control. There's not another verse in the Bible that says, unless this is your personality type, unless this is your Enneagram number. Unless this is your Myers-Briggs combination. Personality sometimes works with us on some of these, and sometimes it works against us on others, but it's never permission, because that's natural. That's biological. That's brain chemistry. We all have it. Character is supposed to transcend all of those things. And Jesus says all of these are supposed to be in all of us because Christ is in us from the moment we make a vow of devotion to Christ. First John 4, 12 to 13. Listen to this. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. What is that saying? It's saying that when this fruit is full and abundant in our lives, we make an invisible God visible to the world. See, you and I have a mandate as devoted followers of Christ to take as many people to heaven with us as we can. And there's all kinds of ways that we're supposed to do that, but the first and foremost way is for the fruit of our life to be so present and so shockingly, surprisingly to other people that all of a sudden, through us, Jesus is high and lifted up, and he begins to do the work of drawing them to himself. My character is supposed to make an invisible God visible to a world that's desperate to know him. My actions, my attitudes, my response, the way I treat people, the the way I love my wife, the way I parent my children, the way I lead the church, right? This is my list. You got a list just like this. The way I respond to the neighbor who keeps honking his air horn whenever we think he thinks we're too loud. True story. How I respond to the city when they keep asking us to do the same things over and over again because government has a tendency sometimes to be inefficient. Hey, a little personal counseling session for Pastor Fred tonight. (laughs) If you're only putting the fruit out when it's easy to do it, Jesus is saying, anybody can do that. He's saying, You better get that fruit out there 
when it's going to surprise others, when it's going to shock them. It's going to create curiosity that creates a current, it creates a momentum that begins to draw people to him. You see, being surprisingly virtuous is a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. I was in here on Thursday with our preschoolers. Love this preschool, right, that's happening here. It's so awesome. These kids, Hannah and JJ and Marcus, I shouldn't have started naming staff because I'm going to forget some, Destiny. They're just doing an incredible job with these kids. And so the, the staff team, we're taking turns doing chapel with them. Two and a half to five-year-olds, and we're teaching them virtue. Yeah. Some of you saw my post on Facebook, and, and, and you got right, you got to make learning fun for kids. You got to make learning fun for kids. And so I came in here with them. It was me and, 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 and those, those, those 12, two and a half, and two and a half to five, yeah, that's a different age range, right? And, uh, and then the staff came in too. And, and, uh, and so to make it fun, we started in the back and we did a belly crawl under this whole entire section from back to front. I, I'm not kidding you. I got to about right here and thought to myself, somebody's going to have to come get me. Because I was about right there under where the boothelets are sitting. And I kid you not, I'm starting to break a sweat. I have a big body to fit under those pews. And some of the pews, like the ones in the front, have hymnal holders. we got to remove that stuff because they are dangerous <laughs> if you're crawling under them. And if you're six foot three and 200 pounds. The kids, right, they're just, it was like they were tied to a rope and somebody was pulling them. So they're laughing and I'm thinking about calling 911 because I might be having a heart attack and... And so we start talking about self-control, and we get the alphabet up there, and I'm, you know, right, because I'm trying to get them to pick the letters, and we spell the word, and, and then we play, instead of playing Simon Says, we played Self-Control Says, Self-Control Says, raise your hand, put it down, and then, then we got as loud as we could, then, then we got as quiet as we could, and I, we were all laying on the floor right here together, the, me and, and these, these 12 little kids, and our faces were all right next to each other, and we were whispering as then we got up and we ran as fast as we could. And then we got to the single file line and walked back. We did that multiple times. Because we're trying to help them to understand that you can be in control of yourself. You, you can choose when you're going to be loud. You can choose when you're going to be quiet. You can choose when you're going to walk. You can choose when you're going to run. There's this sense of trying to help them appreciate and understand, even in an early they're, they're not going to remember any of that. They're too little. But something can get planted deep in their spirit that says, I can be in control of myself. We taught them what we call the Growing Kids God's Way technique, the parenting class that we teach here. We did it with our kids all growing up, that when they're having a problem with having self-control, you have a child sit and put both their hands on their knees. There's, there's something about how the body is connected to the soul. And, 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 and I kid you not, if you've got little kids, if they're having a moment where, where, where they're having a self-control issue, is, 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 is don't just throw them in a room for a timeout, right? You, you, you're, you've got to teach them something. And so you, you, you have them sit and keep their hands on their knees. So we, we did that, and, and we taught those little kids a prayer, that in that moment you can say, God, help me have self-control. Help me have self-control. 
So if you're the parent of one of those kids, you're welcome. (laughs) And hopefully they were better this week because of it. But some of you, you might be 70 years old and you got to learn to do this on the inside. You got to learn to sit and still yourself in the presence of the Father and ask Him to help you, which, which, whichever virtue you're struggling with. Because God says to you, just like what we say to children, you have a choice. You have a choice. Now, I get it if you've had traumatic things happen into your life, part of your choice might be that you've got to go on a journey to get some help. I I believe in that. I believe in counseling. I believe in medication. Sometimes your brain chemistry might literally be working against you and you need some help. I get that. But you've got to make a choice to even do those things. To give yourself and your body, your biology, as many resources as possible so your will doesn't have to work any harder than it's supposed to. Surprising virtue is a choice. Jesus is telling us that real blessing has nothing to do with fate and entitlement and privilege. It's based on a choice, the choice to surprise the world with virtue. Where does that come from? Because when you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, which is one of the five great growth lists, which many of us have grown up in vacation Bible school, right? We've learned that those are called the Beatitudes, that one of the reasons why Jesus gave us that teaching is because he's trying to help the world to understand that you have a choice as to whether or not you're going to walk in the favor and the blessing of God. Can I just tell you how counterculture that was for Jesus in his day? Jesus was born and lived in a time where everybody believed that fate determined your life. You were either born a Jew or not born a Jew. You were either born a Roman citizen or you were not born a Roman citizen. You were either born into the right family so you could become a priest or not. Their whole mindset and mentality was that privilege came through entitlement. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And Jesus gives them this list because he was trying to teach us virtue, but he was also trying to teach the world. This this journey and this pursuit of blessing and favor and meaning, it doesn't come through entitlement. It doesn't come through fate. It comes through choice. And it comes through the choice of choosing to be a virtuous person when the rest of the world says you don't have to. At some point, we've got to wake up and say, I'm not going to be selfish today. I'm not going to be angry today. At some point, we've got to wake up and say, I'm not going to be self-loathing today. At some point, we have to wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to be patient today. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gentle and humble and believing. I'm going to choose to be surprisingly virtuous. We can choose to act differently. We can choose to think differently. God gave us the power of will to make a choice. To bear fruit. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's easy, but even when the world says it's out of season. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm not going to get to the very end of this. I'll pick up on it later in the series.
Surprising virtue is a choice, but surprising virtue is also a deposit. Megan, I'm just going to have you leave the slide up that has the list of virtues on there, and then I'll be the last one we use. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Surprising virtue is a deposit. See, we're called to be a people of virtue, but we're also called, I believe, to make places, places of virtue. Let me, let me read you this verse out of Matthew 10. It says, If any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on the day of judgment. As you begin to look through Scripture, you will begin to find that Jesus doesn't just talk about people. He talks about cities and regions and nations. As you, as you study Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, God doesn't just prophesy to people. There are times where he prophesies to cities and nations and regions. When you do a deep dive, we've never done a series on Revelation, but I, I think 2020 might be our year. When you do a deep dive into Revelation, what you find is there are all kinds of judgments that happen once we get to heaven. One of them is called the judgment of the nations. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a judgment of people, but there is also a judgment of places. And when I say that virtue isn't just about a choice, it's about a deposit, it means that every day of your life, when you have a choice between either being virtuous and the character of Christ coming out of you or something else, and we all know what the something else is, right? That's a long list too. Can I just challenge you to believe that in every one of those moments, you're either making a deposit of virtue into the 757 or you're making a withdrawal. You're either making our city more virtuous or less virtuous by virtue of who you're choosing to be. And as devoted followers of Christ, we're not just called to be virtuous people so the character of Christ could be formed in us because that's going to be part of our individual judgment, which we're going to talk about that as we keep going in this series. We're also called to be virtuous people because we have a responsibility to make the cities and the communities where we live virtuous places because God wants there to be a current in the cities where we live that begins to draw people to heaven. I'm not kidding you, it'll change. It is, it's, it's changing the way sometimes I respond. I'm not kidding you, since I've been working on this idea for, for, for a couple of months now, as we've been putting in series together, I kid you not, there are times, I am not nat by nature a patient person, especially when I'm driving. That's why I don't have any city life or Christian identification on my truck at all or my motorcycle. God help me. But I'm not kidding you. It's, it's changed the way I've acted in some situations. When I find myself in the car and I want to have a, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, Fred, are you going to make a deposit or withdraw? It, cha it changes. It, I'm telling you, it will change your choices. Am I going to make a deposit or am I going to make a withdrawal? See, because if you make your journey about being virtuous just about yourself, this is what will happen. I know because I live there. You begin to give yourself permission to not be virtuous when it's hard 
because you know that God's forgiveness is waiting for you, and it is. But when you begin to say, I have a, I'm supposed to have a hand in people going to heaven and not hell. I'm supposed to make a contribution to people having a different eternity by the way that I live. That my choice in this moment, I'm either going to make a deposit or withdrawal from the treasury of virtue in my region. I'm telling you, you get some motivation to find some self-control, to operate in virtue. Because we want the 757 to be a place where Jesus is high and lifted up. High and lifted up. Because he said when that happens, he'll draw all people to himself. Stand with me as we pray. Fathers, we step into this moment of worship, worship I pray that your spirit would well up in all of us in such a way that there would be a, a, a new sense of resolve, a, a new sense of pursuit, a renewed sense of commitment to be virtuous people. In such a way, to such a degree, with such a consistency and present in such a situation that it startles the people around us startles them. And may it be when we find ourselves in situations and circumstances where we've got to make that choice, oh, come on. Let it be that our reputation in heaven is we are a depositor of virtue in our city and not always making withdrawals. Let it be that our lives is causing the balance of virtue in our reason, region to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it crescendos into a revival that people by the thousands are swept away into heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Come on, let's worship together.